So this is the Interledger uh, bi-weekly community call. It's the 10th of June. Uh, on the agenda today, we're gonna talk a little bit um, about the code ownership of the Rust uh, repository. Um, also uh, how to handle, um, how we're doing things like identity management and exchanging of identity metadata for open payments. Uh, and then some discussion around open payments discovery. Um, so Kincaid, you, you proposed the topic on open payments and identity metadata. I don't know if you want to give an intro and sort of set some context there. Yeah, so I guess I was thinking for, um, you know, um, so one case is payments are initiated by the sender. I, as a sender, create, or as the kind of sending wallet, create an invoice on the receiving wallet. Um, and I imagine it would be, you know, the receiving wallet wanted to display to the user, hey, this is the person who paid you. You know, there's some kind of photo associated with that. Um, so, you know, should the sending wallet provide that information when they create the invoice? Should they host some kind of manifest um, with kind of that uh, metadata? Um, and likewise, on the receiver side, if the sender wallet wants to display who you're paying, uh, should the receiver wallet include that same kind of met metadata about their identity um, in the invoice? Um, okay, yeah. I, and I think um, we, the way we've come across this problem, or probably the way it surfaced first, was when you have something like the equivalent of a merchant or a, actually the payee, side requesting a payment um, how do you make sure that um, the person who you know wants you to send the money so they're kind of initiating the whole uh, interaction is who you think they are uh, I mean you can imagine it's like a classic phishing uh, sort of vector this if if I'm able to initiate a payment from you to me and you get prompted with some screen that makes you believe you're paying you know someone else that seems legitimate to you at the time and some and actually you're paying me um yeah how, how do you avoid that stuff um i don't know if anyone wants to have a stab at like matt if you want to have a stab at sort of uh, what your thinking is there i know we've we've talked a little bit about you know using oauth and extensions of oauth and OpenID connect specifically a, a thing called indieauth but um uh yeah can i open the floor and then i can dive into some of you know my thinking to follow up yeah so i mean a lot of the stuff we've looked at basically relies on people um sort of claiming who they are uh through web sort of web web identity so if you own the the, the domain name you can verify that some way um so all has the concept of uh, dynamic clients um that okay let me take this a step back and then try and sort of give the problem statement a little better so the problem statement you have is that in an open system how does people how do people identify themselves and is there some sort of root of trust um, that that people sort of ground that 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 basis on um, so you can go I, I brought this up before but there's a few few aspects you can go so like if you look in the open banking realm they've got something where they've got like a central authority where all the participants within that payments network go and register with a central authority and get issued certs. And then they use those certs to, to, to when they're doing transactions on with other participants, 
and they can go verify, then those participants can go verify who they claim they are based on that. Um, but that's obviously very closed because you have the idea that like you have the central authority, which could be sort of like an open payments or interledger foundation that manages that and does it, but there could be some pushback to that. And then you can go all the way to the other side where you just claim who you are and basically you, you've got no root of trust and allow people to basically just dynamically register clients on each participant and then just be able to transact who they claim they are. But obviously that leads to the same issue with, um, with phishing and stuff. Um, there, there's sort of a middle ground where you could use domain-based stuff where, where you, you have dynamic client registration, but to, to prove who you are, you have something within your domain that actually goes and, and checks whether that is the case, whether that be something along the lines of like a, some sort of like, like JWKS, uh, JWKS, yeah, hosted, or you have something in your actual HTML with like what Inuit does. And you use that as sort of your, your, your trust line to go check and validate that the person who they are there is they say they are. Again, that leads to similar problems where phishing could happen where people change the name a little bit. So instead of Amazon, you have Amazon. Um, so they are like, uh, it's a tricky problem, but that's sort of the basic ways you can look at it. Um, yeah, uh, we, we haven't come up with a solution yet because it's like, it's not just an open payments problem. I think it's the whole, like, the whole web's trying to solve this problem, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, so I would, I would agree with that. I think like this is fundamentally the problem that, for example, EV certs try to solve. So, you know, the web security model is origin-based. If you own, you know, if you own the domain, whatever, amazon.com, everyone uh, who visits that domain, they're either going there explicitly by typing it in, and so they trust that they are where they, expect it to be and then they see uh, you know it's using um, you know, HTTPS so the end-to-end -end security exists and the browser has verified that the certificate that's being used belongs to amazon.com but ultimately they have to trust a certificate authority that issued that certificate so the whole like the web model basically the, the root of trust is certificate authorities. You, you shouldn't be able to get a certificate for amazon.com unless you prove you actually control amazon.com. And then, you know, EV certs was a fantastic money-making scheme by certificate authorities where they take you through a more thorough due diligence and they issue a, an extended validation cert. And so you get a little green bar and like, you know, extra, extra eye candy for users to prove that you were like, that you really are Amazon, the company, um, and not just the owners of amazon.com. Um, from what I've heard, I mean, this is like, this is sort of anecdotal, so I don't have strong like, evidence for this, but just what I've read, a lot of this doesn't help that much. Users still get fooled. Like you can register a company in some obscure country that has the same name as a legitimate company in let's say the u.s and target u.s you know customers and pretend to be that company because you actually registered a legitimate company in that obscure country and so we're able to get an ev cert with that name um, so it's not a it's not a foolproof plan like the financial industry has much more um i guess rigorous standards around this like you know you get big codes for example as a bank um, but that's very centralized. So to Matt's point, like that's on the other end of the spectrum. If you want to identify yourself, 
you know, on the Swift network, for example, it's, it's, you have a code that only you could get and you have, you know, um, groups of people that you choose to interact with and so on. It's very tightly controlled, but that's, you know, that's not the kind of system we want to build. So we have to find, I think, something that um, is lightweight enough that, you know, is actually practical for people to implement, but strong enough that, you know, to quote uh, uh, David on our previous call, is it doesn't become a honeypot. So, you know, as, as David was pointing out, like if it's really easy to change that sort of, um, to get in between that association and the actual entity behind it, um, that's what people are going to target, you know, for, for fraud or whatever the case may be. So um, just to explain a little bit about how the sort of dynamic registration and indie auth works, basically um, what you would do is, you know, you're doing sort of standard OAuth interactions, but as the client, as the entity sort of initiating, norm, often the, the usual case with OAuth is the client is pre-registered. So for example, if you want, you as have an application, let's say you want your users to be able to log into your application with Google. You go and register with Google ahead of time as a client um, and, you know, Google does whatever checks they want to do to make sure you are who you say you are. And then when you redirect a user to Google to log in, to come back to your app, Google shows them the information that you registered with. And so Google controls that UI, controls that experience. And that's sort of the, that's the check that's in place. Um, dynamic client registration means you can register with Google, you know, sort of in process. Um, and it assumes the ecosystem doesn't have like single big, players like Google that everyone just goes and doesn't mind registering with, uh, you know, um, upfront. So let's assume it's a, a really decentral distributed ecosystem and there isn't sort of one or two major players that everyone's going to go and register with as clients. You need dynamic client registration. And so what Indie Auth does is quite clever in my opinion, is says you identify yourself with a URL. So if I'm the client and I identify myself as, you know, uh, adrian.hopebailey.com. Um, then what the OAuth server, the, the AS at least, is going to do is it's actually going to make a web request to that URL and it's going to fetch the HTML, you know, that's there and it's going to look for, um, I think it's meta tags or, or in, anyway, it's looking for specific markup in the HTML to um, where I've identified myself. And the 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 assertion there is if it makes a secure request to that URL, whoever controls that server basically controls who is like identified by that URL. And so I would give you a URL that I control, you know, you go and fetch that content. And in that content is like who I claim to be. It's like, I am Adrian and so on. So when you're making a payment to me, that's what will appear on the screen. You'll see, you know, uh, Adrian and maybe I'll have provided a link to like a, uh, an image or something. So do you confident that you pay me? And that's, that's basically indie auth. It's, it's open ID connect on top of OAuth, but where dynamic client registration uses basically just the web as a way of going fetching stuff. So okay, can, we can actually, I just botch in here, Adrian, that there's no finality in that. There's no veracity in, in what you're claiming to do. Can, can you explain what you mean, man? A URL can be spoofed. 
So if, if, uh, if they spoofed, what, what do you what do you mean by that? So I'm I'm the party wanting to be identified, and I provide the URL, and I provide a URL that I URL is not a secure environment. Do we agree on that? WW no, I don't think we do. Not as secure. In what way secure? At what at what sort of level of security? Finality of absolutely proving that you are who you say you are. Are you are you suggesting this is gonna be used as KYC? AML? No. No, so so that's a very good question. That's a that's a good point. This is not finality. There's there's nothing about the fact that I own a URL and control the content at that URL that proves um, I am who I who I say I am. So what the what the user sees is the URL as well as the information that was fetched from there. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a good point. Sorry, the the you know it, it again the web uh, in on the web identifiers are origins or, or you know it's it's a domain. So it, it's no better than for example if I said I was Amazon.com and you know, I can prove that because I've got a certificate that was signed by a certificate authority that said I'm Amazon.com. Um, sorry, yeah, yeah that, that's, that's, a, that's, that's there's not, no, there's no, um, there's no hard. That's not, that's not pretty good uh, privacy, right? That's my point. Can you expand on that? A pretty good privacy uh, was, uh, that, that was back in the eighties when I, started uh, joining the define uh, on, 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 on privacy and stuff. We, we, now, we, we need to step up our, um, our fights. Uh, Google, uh, Amazon, all this COVID. Uh, I've, I've been quiet for a long time because I've been in self-isolation here in Stuttgart in Germany. So now we have all these things coming out that are claiming to be uh, able to approximate you to an approximation of somebody else in a secure fashion, and they're using Bluetooth. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be harping on about this, but you need to be very, very careful about how, how, you, how you contextualize your security measures on what your privacy is and what your private data is. And we can't do that on, on, on a www. Uh, that, that's just my personal opinion. You can argue with me o over several weeks, but I'm, I don't think I'm going to change my mind on that one. Okay. Um, uh, so just to clarify, I, I mean, the, this discussion is not specifically about privacy at this point. The, the scenario here is a user's on a website. They know the URL of the website. They're now being redirected to their wallet to pay that website. And they want to be certain that the, um, the payment they're making is actually to that website. And so, so are, are you, are you telling me that privacy and, and veracity of the data being transferred is not important on, on that issue? 
I'm not quite sure if I follow your your line of thinking. So if, if I can spoof a, a, a worldwide web address, right? I can be man in, in the middle. How, how would you do that? So how, how would you spoof uh, amazon.com? Well, that's being done thousands of times every every day. Okay, it's, it's, not, it's not about spoofing the exact address. It's about, this is about social hacking. Can I spoof your mind? It's not mm -hmm. about the, it, it's not about the, uh, and, and we, need, we need to take this up two or three steps because this is what is going on. It, it's not, I think what, what, what's going on in the world right now is not really, <laughs> well, obviously a lot of people say, sitting at home thinking very quickly about how they can scam people from anything. But it's, it's, it's not about spoofing your www uh, address. It's about how do I, how do I spoof you? How do I trick you to get you to tell me what you're doing? Yes, you have to be, so it's contextual, it, it, it's timely. I need to know what, what it is that you want to do, but if I can, if I know that you're going to be transferring and I, I wouldn't $10 million to somebody through our system, right? Which is inter inter interchangeable within protocols and stuff like that. If I know that's going on, it would be very, very interesting for me if I can spoof the social hacking out of you, what, what, what's your password? What's your www address? I'm, I'm just saying, and, and, and let's, let's all agree that nothing is 100% secure ever because there's always a missing link somewhere. That, that's, that's the point. So let, let's not assume that everything is 100% uh, secure. That was my point. Yeah, look, I, I think uh, in payments, um, everything has to be risk-based. So, you know, at this stage, open payments and what we're discussing is sort of primarily focused on, on retail. So we're talking about payments, you know, the kind of payments I would do when I'm shopping online, not $10 million. Um, uh, so, so you know, the security has to be sort of commensurate with the, the risk. Um, so I, I think the scenario here is I'm, I'm browsing a website. Um, I want to pay. Uh, I know the URL of that website. I provide them with uh, my payment pointer, and that allows them to initiate a conversation with my wallet and request payment. So that's that stuff we've already got in the protocol. They, you know, I gave them my identifier. They um, initiate a, a conversation with my wallet, um, and they request that my wallet allow them to, you know, withdraw whatever it is, fifty-six dollars or something, whatever I'm buying on Amazon. And at that point, my wallet prompts me to confirm the payment. And the problem we're solving is when my wallet prompts me to confirm a payment what does my wallet show me as an identifier of the payee as the thing I'm paying? So I've been redirected from amazon.com. I'm now sitting on mywallet.com. 
uh, and I'm looking at a screen that says, do you want to send $56 to? Now, what IndieAuth would allow us to do is say, do you want to send $56 to Amazon.com? And it would also allow um, the Amazon to have specified like a business name and maybe an icon that it could show there just to make me feel more confident that, you know, these things all tie together. Um, obviously those can be spoofed, but you know, as a user, um, I'm looking at the amazon.com, like that's the, that's the identifier. So, um, that's at least, you know, that's my best explanation of how indie auth works. And that's something we're looking at. Um, so it's leveraging, you know, what exists on the web today. It's two-factor uh, authentication for a payment uh, solution. I don't follow. Two-factor authentication. Yeah, yeah. What, what, how is that two-factor? Well, you know something and I know something. That's two-factor. We need to step that up to three or, or above. Right. Again, again, I think that sort of depends on the, the transaction type and the risk profile. Um, but my point here was really just to explain how India Auth works and, and what we're thinking about at the moment. So, you know, to Matt's point earlier, anything that you want to do that steps up above that is going to require new infrastructure. Um, like this is leveraging what exists on the web today and what's available. So if somebody wanted to be more um, be able to, for example, show an identity that was proven to be bound to a real world identity. So, you know, it's proven to be Amazon, the business. Um, at the moment, as I explained, the best we have is extended validation certs. But if you wanted something more than that, you know, you're starting to get into the, the realm of what Matt described, where you have a network of participants who actually agree on, on a registry and a way to identify each other and basically some sort of uh, PKI. Um, so, you know, personally, I'm not like super excited about trying to do something like that for retail payments, but I would be certainly interested right. to hear if others have, have, you know, solutions that could work there. Why, why are you not uh, super enthused about that? That, that is creating new and creating new infrastructure just for this purpose. No, we have the infrastructure already. We have uh, uh, multiple. So what we're doing in Denmark right now is, is basically uh, we, we have a, a, a very, very bad system, which is based on our, uh, our personal identity code. So your, your birth date plus a four digit hash to identify you. Um, and that, 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 that's actually, uh, <laughs> we've, we've lost 20,000 passports over the last three years and, and, and it, most of it has come through Canada. I don't understand why. So the, the, the ability to identify who you are, who you say you are, is absolute. In, in the, the, now we're into web 3.0. Now, if, if we start talking about payments and stuff like that, if you look at the regulations that have just been put into place, none of the stuff that we're talking about even comes close to being, being uh, 
able to be regulated by that. And I, th I think we have, we have to switch our conversation onto AML, KYC, stuff like that. You know, it, it's, it's not about sending dollars from here to there. It, it's value. Uh, it, it's value transactions between people. Now you have China. China is beginning to step up now with their um, digital yuan. You have other people doing the same thing. Sweden is doing e-krona e and stuff like that. How do we integrate with that? How, how do we put that into our community? How do we validate it? And how do we authenticate it? And what is the veracity of the authentication? Have you got any thoughts there? Me personally? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we need to create a, a new identity for every uh, single transaction as an identifier. A new, identity, a, a new identity for all, all the participants? No, no, the, the, so it's, it's point to point. So yeah. you and so I have two a participants. We know, we know that we're doing this transaction and, and we can do that on, on, a, on a level right now. We're doing that in Denmark right now. Okay, well, so I, I want to just stop you there because I think we, we're going a little bit off topic here. I, if I understood the topic that Kincaid proposed was we have an existing payment protocol, right? Where we're negotiating, that we're setting up an interledger payment. That's, that's what Open Payments does. It, it talks about, you know, how do I create an invoice? How do I create a mandate, how do I execute charges against a pre-authorized mandate? We're using OAuth to create authorizations, but the problem statement here is when I interact with my wallet, so the entity that um, holds my money and is gonna perform transactions on my behalf, and that wallet is giving me some sort of UI or display of who the person on the other side of the transaction is, how do we um, how do we exchange that? So, so I think his question was about like, how, do, how does that metadata exchange actually work? And then, you know, what is the, you know, how, do we, how do we ensure the authenticity of that? And my assertion is right now, if we use web technologies, we can only get as far as to say, we are certain that that entity identified by a URL does actually control that URL. And so if they chose to identify themselves with that URL and I trust, I, I choose to pay that URL, then I can trust my wallet is showing me um, information about that actual URL because it was gleaned from that URL. That's as far as we've got. I think what you're talking about is a, is a, a quite a lot more radical. Um, yeah, I, I, and, I understand that enough. I'm sorry for uh... No, 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 no problem. Like, I think it's a useful, con like in the, in the macro sense, there's a big, as you point out, there's a big conversation to have there. And yeah. I think a lot of people are trying to solve what, that problem. What, what are you basing the, uh, so what, what I'm searching for is the finality of the transaction. What, what are you basing the finality on in the model that you're talking about right now? Because I, I, I don't see that. There's no finality if, if, if you're on World Wide Web. 
So are we talking about finality okay. in terms of the transaction is considered complete or? Yes. Uh, so well, it, it, uh, let, let, let's, let's, let's split this up. So there's finality complete, which is both parties agree. There's finality, so charge back. Not possible. Yep, exactly. With Bitcoin, I, I send to an address that doesn't exist. Screw you, right? Yep. So, so again, I, like I, I recognize these are all you know, worthwhile topics to explore, but um, I don't think this is exactly the topic that Kincaid you know, was raising. The, the, what do you wanted to know was, you know, what, what are we thinking in terms of open payments specifically and how this would work? So I've explained so I, that I and just, I'm, I'm wondering I, I just, if others have thoughts want, about, yeah, go ahead. I, I just want everybody to think harder because this is going to come up very, very quickly. That's the only okay. thing. Yeah, I, I suggest that this is something worth raising in the forums and trying to um, find, you know, a group of people within the community to, to corral around this issue and, and see, you know, if there's something worth exploring there. But but I think, you know, in, in terms of open payments and the immediate challenge we have, uh, we're thinking, you know, pretty low value. So, you know, the, the stakes are not high. Um, and, to make and it better think, than Visa and MasterCard, it, it's a good thing. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, definitely, that's definitely the intention. At least that's my intention. Um, so anyway, I, I want to stop there. We've used a lot of time and I want to just bring Kincaid back into the conversation here and, and say... Um, and find out from you, Kincaid, like, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, what, did you have any uh, ideas in mind? Um, or maybe there's others on the call who want to add something as well. Yeah, not in particular. Um, I, like, I think the origin-based model is kind of interesting in that it strikes a balance between kind of preventing against some phishing scenarios, but still keeps it open. Um, so yeah, no, a lot of good kind of ideas on um, India auth and uh, dynamic registration and that. Um, I don't want to keep, I know there was like a lot of other topics and uh, I don't want to, you know, prevent us from getting to those. Sure, we, we've still got 20 odd minutes. Um, does anyone want to throw in a last word on the on this one? Maybe, maybe um, you know, it's definitely something I think we'll be exploring down the line, um, trying to solve. Um, and, you know, as we do those experiments, we can keep bringing back what we're finding. Uh, any, any other comments? Anyone have anything to add on that before we move on? Yeah, this is a good question. Yeah, Dave. Just real quick, I, um, I think we should move on, but uh, Perlin, I, I, I'd love it if you made a forum post or a Slack post or something. I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I don't think it's maybe something everyone on the call uh, needs to hear so we should definitely move on but um if you're open to that i'd love to hear more over on the forum yeah i i, I do encourage I'll, I'll, I'll you do to to kick kick off a topic because i'm looking at the list of people on the call today and i know a number of them are involved in trying to solve this problem um either in open payments or in other related projects so um yeah kick that conversation off on the forum it would be it would be good to so do that asynchronously for a while and maybe we can report back on a, a future call. No problem. I'll do that. Matt, you had a question. Just a quick, 
yeah, just a quick question for David or any of the, the people that are working on PayID. Um, they also, like PayID also uses um, origin-based root of trust. Am I correct in assuming that? Uh, PayID doesn't actually mandate that. So we sort of expect that either, you know, origin-based root of trust will be like the most common thing and de facto standard, if you will. But that's actually an open question. So uh, especially as it relates to travel rule and MLKYC, we're, we're like sort of exploring a number of different avenues. And those avenues, especially in travel rule world, have different sort of ideas about what the ultimate root of trust should be. So I would say it's very much um, like it being debated in progress uh, question. Cool, thanks. Yeah, and again, it's, Matt, it's a hard Matt, problem you, I think people yeah. are all trying to solve. <laughs> Matt, while you've uh, got the mic, um, you raised a topic about the, uh, the Rust uh, ILP implementation. Yeah, so I mean, the, the basic gist is like I, I've been popping in and out of the, the repo lately, and there's been quite a few commits from um, the, the, the crowd at Equilibrium. So I'm not exactly sure what they're working on, like, um, but they are committing and there are people sort of doing PRs, and people keep getting tagged that aren't really involved in the project anymore. Um, and like, Kincaid's sort of picking up the slack, but I just wonder does anybody know what? what or how we should deal with that repo as a community. Um, yeah. Yeah, good question. Um, I don't know if anyone from Spring has any thoughts. I know that it was originally developed in within Spring. Um, is anyone at Spring still maintaining that or, or contributing? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, we don't have anyone actively contributing or maintaining. We're pretty focused on the Java implementation. That said, though, I think um, you know Evan started that that project, and like it, it seems fine to me to sort of have it be community owned. Uh, I'm not sure if the Equilibrium guys actually have that in mind that they want to take over that repo, but they're using yeah, it for... I mean, that's that's the challenge with community owned means like uh, somebody still needs to say, okay, cool, we'll 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 own it. Um, so I guess it sounds like that's what we need to do. We need to look at who the current committers are and see if they want to basically take responsibility for it. Um, the, the other thing is to maybe check in with the original committers and see if they still have an interest or are happy to hand it over. Okay. Um, I mean, is anyone on the call currently actively committing to it and, and interested in continuing to do so? When all else fails, we're going to throw it at you and um, Kincaid, Matt. Um, okay, cool. So we had one other topic, um, David, that you proposed, which was uh, to talk about open payments discovery. Um, do you want to, well, sorry, before we move on there. Um, so maybe a sort of action item on that. Uh, I'll see what I can do in terms of getting in touch with some of the earlier committers, or maybe we can post a, uh, we, we can post an issue on it and see if anyone would like to um, take over as a sort of the, the code owners um, and see what interest we get there. Perhaps the guys who are making commits at the moment would be interested. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, Matt or Kincaid, do you, do you mind doing that? One of you guys? 
Yeah, I can open an issue for that um, and start exploring what what um, what the previous maintainers want to do there. Cool, thanks. I, I can help um, in terms of getting in touch of it with Evan and so on as well. Okay, um, David, you wanted to talk about open payments discovery. Yeah, um, I I'm not sure I have like a uh, like a concrete opinion here. So I I, I just want to like throw out a couple like points and one example, and then maybe um, some of the guys, some of the other engineers on Spring have some other examples that come to mind. But previous to the most recent PR, um, we had like a, a host-wide well-known location for metadata, and um, which is fine. And I think we've, we've sort of transitioned to uh, a couple different proposals, I guess. Adrian, you have your PID discovery spec, which has like one proposal. Um, I think what so so we should we should probably agree or or discuss at least like what what's like the general thing we want out of discovery. Um, from my perspective, like there's there's going to be like host wide information that needs to be found. And then there's likely going to be like um, account level. So by account, I mean like open payments account level metadata. I think Adrian, your, your PR maybe supports both. So, um, you know, definitely like stuff to consider there. I suppose like making the, the problem more concrete would be like, like we have, we have this um, demo that we're putting together where you're on a merchant site and you basically like, click to pay and the merchant needs to redirect you back to your wallet. Um, so the question is like, how does that work? Like, how does that work in web? How does it work in mobile or, or deep linking? Like that could be as simple as just we normatively say, here's the URL that you should use. But there's a little bit more complexity there. Like how do you actually get like the amount and other details back to the, to the wallet? and what's sort of the standard way to make that happen. I'm not sure if that, that's like touching discovery yeah. and touching protocol. No, I think that's, so. I think that's a fair, I, I mean, I can give you the background on, you know, I, I think most of the discovery stuff that's there is probably my fault. So I can give you the background on how it ended up that way. Um, and, and, you know, oh, Adrian, you maybe, cut maybe up for a second. Can you start over? Sure. So most of the discovery stuff that's there today for open payments is is you know my fault. So I, I can give you background. It's never on your fault, Adrian. How how it how it got that way. So let me let me explain that. So um, right at the beginning when we were exploring open payments, um, we sort of decided we we needed a framework for uh, you know authorization. And looking around at the way, you know, what was becoming kind of de facto standard on the web was OAuth. And then also, you know, similar initiatives like open banking were also adopting OAuth. Um, as we dug deeper, we realized like payments was a big topic in, you know, the OAuth working groups even, and, and a big topic of discussion from the folks who invented OAuth. Like they're all, um, you know, they're a, lo a lot of them are working in sort of the payment space and trying to use OAuth or something similar or, or fix OAuth to make it work better for payments and so on. And, so, and the, FX, the FX conundrum. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that was the background. And, and one of the things that OAuth has 
uh, is this concept of server metadata. So I sort of, you know, I jumped, fell in the trap or jumped on the opportunity, depends which way you want to look at it, of just leveraging what existed already then as a standard and said, okay, well, if you can, if you can derive an origin from your identifier, so let's say you have a payment pointer, you know, um, or any identifier, but ultimately you, you end up with an origin. It's easy to go from that to a metadata document at a well-known address using this OAuth standard. Um, and then, you know, in that OAuth, in that metadata doc, you get a list of all the like endpoints that you're going to use for different things, token, OAuth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that was the original thinking. And I think, you know, that's what was in there for a long time. Then the most recent updates, you know, that we iterated on over the last few months, um, it became clear that the right way for a payment pointer to resolve was to go from a payment pointer to a URL that basically represented like an account resource. Um, and, and we, you know, we've moved between like resources with different media types to, you know, explicit uh, resource URLs relative to the account um, and ended up basically where we are now. So what you have is you have an identifier, that identifier translates into a URL and that URL is understood to be an account resource. And that's the root of like your interactions. You're interacting with that account. And, you know, relative to that are other resource URLs uh, or APIs that you can do things with that account. So you can create invoices for payments into that account. You can create mandates for payments out of that account. You can create charges against those mandates. So that, that was kind of the thinking. And then, um, the question was, how do I get, you know, so, so the, the things that the metadata had delivered before was the list of endpoints, basically, and a bit of information about the server. And what we kind of realized, um, I'm saying we because I'm sharing the blame, but a lot of this was me, um, was that uh, that stuff, if you need it, you, you know, if I'm interacting with an account at a wallet, um, I don't really care at that point in time what the server level like authorization endpoint is. I want to know what the endpoint is that I need to go to to get authorization to interact with that account. It may happen to be the same for all accounts on that server, but for me as the client, that's irrelevant. I don't want to make two HTTP calls, one to a server metadata document and then a second to the account um, when actually it could have all just been returned in the single call to the account. So that's part of the thinking about behind why you, you know, keep it super simple. You've got a payment pointer, it becomes, you know, you translate it into URL, you hit that URL, you end up with, um, uh, you, you end up with a bunch of metadata about that account. Some of that metadata may be common to other accounts on the server, but it doesn't really matter. Like that's, that's how you, that's what you get. So that was sort of the, uh, that was the, the thinking. And, and to ensure backwards compatibility with web monetization, um, you had to explicitly make a call to that URL for application JSON. Uh, so you couldn't, if you did the application JSON SPSP4, you were basically doing the equivalent of an SPSP query. So you were going, you were, you were jumping past account metadata and going straight to give me payment details. Um, and that all fitted quite nicely into how we then positioned all the other APIs and things around that. So that if I, you know, um, post an invoice to that URL, to the invoices endpoint, and I specify different uh, media types, I can immediately get back the invoice that I created, but also the payment details for that invoice. 
So it was just like a couple of little optimizations that came from feedback and so on along the way. So that's the that's the background there, um, David. I see. Uh, I, I think. Um, yeah, that's super helpful, and actually, it makes uh, that context is makes a lot of sense to me. I think where where and why it's breaking down for our prototyping is that we're approaching an open payment server without a payment pointer. Um, we happen to have some other identifier, but you could imagine like no um, any identifier, like an email address or whatever. So the question for me is, um, you know, like we, we have a few options. We could say, um, cool, take any identifier, whether it's payment pointer, email address, whatever. And there's some way to get from that identifier to a URL, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's just the origin. Like if it's amazon.com, it's just them. Like you don't know anything about their open payments endpoints. What's sort of missing in that in our world, because we don't have like payment pointer sort of intrinsically gives you a URL that you can then start doing open payments on by, by um, it's like implicit. But in the absence of that implicit URL structure, uh, like we don't have a way to assemble the open payments URLs. So one option we have is we could like define that protocol in our identifier standards, right? But, uh, it, well, I don't know, like there are other uh, times in open payments where we need um, host and account level metadata um, when we don't know um, we don't know the exact right URLs that we should be using. And so like my wallet example was another case where even though you have the invoice URLs, you don't necessarily know other information about that origin that you would, you would want to know like the wallet address. So I'll so to say, I feel like open okay, payments could benefit from a discovery layer. If, if, if you look back at, uh, so on, on, on the payment level, you need to differentiate between what is the value transaction in the in the in the transaction. If I'm buying a three dollar uh, coffee down at the whatever coffee shop I, I go at, I'm not I'm not particularly worried about my my security because that that's a one that's a one off transaction. If I'm sending $20 million to you, I want to make sure that the transaction is actually going through. So, so we, we need to have a scalation or escalation of security as, as we talk about how we do transactions on, on any of these systems. I don't care what, what system it is, it's, it's, it's Amazon or, or whatever. Yeah. I think that's a valid point. I, I think I it's just orthogonal to, to this discussion. Like um, before we can secure something, we need to know how we even do something. And, and that's the layer that I'm, I'm at at the moment. So, so my, like my take on this, David, is, from an open payments perspective is everything in open payments starts with the account URL. Like you have a URL for an account. Um, so if you wanted to define a different discovery mechanism using different identifiers to payment pointers, you would find a way to end up with an account URL. So, so an example would be what I proposed in that PR for pay IDs. You know, a pay ID doesn't immediately get you to an account URL. So 
my proposal says we'll take a pay ID and go through a different route, but ultimately end up with a, a, an account URL. And then you start doing open payment stuff with that. What, what are you like? Are you saying you have use cases where that assumption is no, not valid? You, you don't have an account URL? Oops, sorry, I muted. Um, no, I suppose even in the in my wallet example, there is an account URL since there's like, um, you know, two accounts with an in, like operating on an invoice together. So, yeah, I think in that world, you know, the account URL, and if there's a defined way to do discovery, then one could say, I'm going to define a wallet discovery protocol inside of the the um, open payments discovery. I suppose that seems to David, nail it. David, you, um, you have to turn on your, your, your camera because we hear birds in, in the background. <laughs> it's much less exciting than it sounds. So we, we, we've got a few minutes left. Um, when you say, uh, when you say uh, within the open payments discovery, what do you mean? I mean, so currently open payments only has one defined discovery mechanism. It assumes that the identifier you have is the payment pointer and that, you know, translates into a URL and that URL is an account resource and everything else kind of builds from that. If, if you had an alternative identifier, you would need to find a way to get from that identifier to an account URL. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I guess I meant um, given an account URL, how do you discover the wallet, for example, that, that should right. pay? What, what, okay, so, so uh, interesting. What's the use case there? Like, why do you need to know the wallet? Uh, just to pay an invoice. So imagine you're on a, a merchant site and you click pay mm -hmm. with uh, open payments. That merchant, all, all it has, like in, in payment pointer world, yeah, maybe you type in your payment pointer, but eventually that merchant site will get to your open payments URL, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, somehow the merchant needs to be able to get you back to your wallet. Finality of payment. So, so what in this interaction, uh, the merchant has redirected you, has directed you to your wallet, but there, uh, maybe we need to pick a specific use case here and work it through. Um, like the, the use cases, the two ways we've defined that you would do sort of e-commerce is either, um, you know, you create the invoice um, and you pay it or you create a mandate and you create a charge against that. So it's like a one-off mandate. So it's either push or pull. Um, yeah, I mean, we're we running out of time to dive into this in detail. Maybe, I'm not really sure how to... Um, how to solve this in the next few minutes. <laughs> the, 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 like the challenge is, uh, I don't really understand your use case. Like what, how, you know, what the flows are, like how does, what does the user do on the merchant side that gets the, that results in them being redirected to their wallet? Like what do they provide the merchant? Yeah, um, I guess in our flow, it's the standard invoice flow, right? So if you're on the merchant side and you click um, buy, or whatever, pay, mm -hmm. the merchant's going to create an invoice on the merchant's open payment server, right? Mm -hmm. 
And then somehow it needs to get the user in its user agent back to the wallet to pay that invoice. And in the flow diagrams on open payments, that's sort of just an arrow. And it's kind of like says out of scope, like maybe you click, a, maybe you have a QR code or whatever, but in web terms, there needs to be some protocol to redirect you off well, the so okay, website so it's it yeah yeah so so there's an invoice sitting at the merchant and the merchant needs the user to be taken to their wallet to pay that invoice like the the approach yeah. in something like open banking for example or other um, others is here's a list of wallets pick your one and you go there and that sucks so. Um, our improvement on that is type in your payment pointer and we'll discover your wallet through your payment pointer. So I'm assuming you would want to do something similar, like type in whatever identifier you have from your wallet and you'll be redirected and I'll, we'll be able to figure out who your wallet is and direct you there. And then how, how do you, you do know, that? Well, that's how we so do just, it. Just to clarify, Adrian, just to clarify then, yeah. it sounds like the advice is go solve that in the identifier layer don't try to solve that in open payments. I think so. Like, uh, if I'm understanding your question correctly. So another way to do it that we've explored with Rafiki is using the payment request APIs. So if yeah. I've, you know, got the Rafiki payment handler installed, then when the merchant calls payment request, um, because my payment app is installed, that's the one that gets invoked. So there's kind of different, that's why I think, you know, for the very generic use case description in open payments, it's sort of somehow the invoice ID gets to the wallet. And, you know, the, the simplest way is you use the payment pointer, but I'd be keen to explore, you know, others totally. Anyway, yeah. we, we, I know, I know we have to go out of time there, but let's, let's pick yeah. this one up maybe also sure. as a forum post or, or on a future call. Um, yeah. Cool. Thanks very much, everyone. Sorry, it, it sort of uh, went a little over time. Um, the, Sorry the for will be... writing in. <laughs> no, thanks for your, your contributions. Welcome. Per, per, no, not at all. Um, as long as we can stay on topic, always welcome. Um, so next call will be uh, 24th of June. Uh, we'll chat again then. Thanks, everyone.